please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets, it was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to, a, to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let us pray together as we come to this chapter of God's Word. Our Father, again, we ask that you would help us as we come to your Word, and that you, Holy Spirit, would illuminate the meaning of these words to our minds, that we would understand what it is that you have revealed here about yourself and about us and the sin that is in our hearts. And Father, revealing it, that you would convict us and convince us of your truth and righteousness and transform us by renewing our minds and continue to grow us in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I'm excited to get back now to our study of the Minor Prophets together and especially and specifically the great book of Hosea. We're coming into the home stretch of Hosea this morning, chapter 12, and we'll finish with chapter 14, Lord willing, right before Christmas, where, of course, we celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God who came to love us to the uttermost by laying his life down to redeem us from our sin. All of those 
themes are central also to the book of Hosea, which is looking ahead to Christ and to the great love and redeeming grace of God that is going to be poured out when he sends his son Emmanuel to come and save us. So far, we have seen very, very vividly in this book how God put his redeeming love on display through the living parable that he called Hosea the prophet to be in marrying a woman of harlotry and redeeming her out of the enslavement that her unfaithfulness and immorality had brought her to. And Hosea was called to love her and to be faithful to her in spite of her, just like God loves Israel, just like God in Christ has loved us. And we've seen, too, all throughout this book, the severity of human sin, which Hosea's wife, Gomer, is really just a picture of all of the ways that people who were made in the image of God go astray from him and are unfaithful to him in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, all of the ways that sin enslaves us and manifests itself in our lives. We've seen also by great contrast to our sin just how tenaciously steadfast the love of God is towards wayward sinners as he expresses it to Israel here in this book. He is at the same time righteously enraged by their unfaithfulness towards him and at the same time tenderly and affectionately caring for them, desiring their repentance, desiring their redemption, so, so purposing both their punishment and their purification. Those are the central themes of this book, which again point always to his ultimate plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And in all of that, of course, one of the central themes that is revealed and proclaimed throughout the book of Hosea is the theme of repentance. God desires and God demands that they turn back from their idols, that they turn away from their spiritual unfaithfulness and adultery and return to him. And he promises that if they do, they will find mercy because God is a compassionate and loving and merciful God every bit as much as he is a just and righteous God who hates sin. So today, we come to chapter 12. And as we come towards the end of the book, we find God in this chapter, chapter 12, that we're going to take in today, we find God pointing Israel back to look upon their own history and reflect on who they are and where they've come from and what they've done in some critical ways that, that emphasizes their great need to repent, to turn from what they've become now, to, to go back to what they used to be, to turn back to God, to turn back to walking by faith in Him, which is how they started out. And in all of that that we're going to see in this chapter, there's plenty that God is revealing to us, speaking to us, plenty for us to learn by looking back on Israel's past and history, which would drive us towards a growing faithfulness in God in our own lives. So the first thing, as you look at chapter 12, the first thing that I want to point out about chapter 12 is this. It's that in the Hebrew text, chapter 12 begins with the verse that shows up in our Bible as the last verse of chapter 11. So... 
verse 12 of chapter 11 in your English Bible is actually in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 of chapter 12. And that's actually important because that verse is meant to go together with the two verses that follow it. And what they say about both Israel and Judah. Israel, of course, was the name of the northern kingdom, how it was referred to after the division of the kingdom following Solomon's reign. Judah was what the southern kingdom was called. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, the verse that our English Bible calls verse 1, God is once again condemning the sin of Israel up in the north. And then in verse 2, he says that he also has an indictment against Judah in the south. He's not happy with either of them. And that's a little bit confusing in light of the verse that our Bibles call verse 12 of chapter 11, where a lot of our English translations seem to, to contrast the unfaithfulness of Judah in the north with the faithfulness of, or Israel in the north, I'm sorry, with the faithfulness of Judah in the south. Do you see that in verse 12 of chapter 11 as it shows up in your Bible? Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, that's Israel in the north, the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah, on the other hand, by contrast, still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. At least that's how my translation renders it. Maybe you have a different translation and it renders it very, very differently. The question is this. If this translation is right, the English Standard Version is what I'm reading from. If this translation is right and Judah still walks with God and Judah is faithful to the Holy One, then why does God have an indictment against Judah two verses later? And that seems especially confusing when we recognize that in the Hebrew Bible, these verses all go together at the beginning of chapter 12 instead of there being a, a, a break between them like the English translations have it composed. So if you have another translation, maybe you're reading from the New American Standard Version today, or maybe you're reading from the New International Version today, and if you are, you'll notice that in verse 12 of chapter 11 there, with reference to Judah, your Bible says the opposite of what my Bible says. The New American Standard says this, in the NIV, something like this, Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, and Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Instead of what my translation says, which is Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And in this case, I believe my translation's got it wrong. And if you're reading one of those other two, your translation's got it right in terms of what the Hebrew actually was written to say. I think what God wanted to do was paint both Israel and Judah in a negative light and not Judah in a positive light. The Hebrew phrase is rod amel, which means to roam about with God. The word rod means to, to walk about, to roam about. The word am means in relation to someone. The word el means God. So Judah is roaming about in relation to God. And the question is, what exactly does that mean? And some translations understand it in a positive way. Judah walks with God. Some understand it in a negative way. Against God. Judah is roaming against God. Not with God, but against God. And given the context of these verses... 
I think the negative interpretation is what God actually meant to communicate here through Hosea. And the word to roam about, the word rod in Hebrew, isn't actually neutral in its in its flavor, in its tone. It's got a, a decidedly restless kind of a tone to it. It means, it means to walk freely from somebody else's constraint. It means to walk restless. It means it, it's used elsewhere in Scripture about a wild animal that's just running around out there and nobody can rope it in or lasso it in or contain it. It's unruly is, is, is really the flavor of this word. For instance, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 31 where God is speaking about Judah. And he says, my people say, Judah, the people of Judah say, we are free. And that's that same word. We roam free and will not come to God anymore. We're free of him. We're doing whatever we, that's what this word is referring to. That's what was going on in Judah. They weren't walking with God. They were running around like unruly, untamed, wild animals doing whatever they wanted instead of being faithful to God. So again, where the English standard says at the end of verse 12 that Judah is faithful to the Holy One, attributing the faithfulness to Judah, those other translations like the New American Standard and the NIV, they attribute the faithfulness instead to God, to the Holy One Himself. Judah is unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. He's the faithful one, not Judah. And I think the Hebrew grammar supports that reading better. So, if you're reading out of the ESV this morning, I apologize. But you may want to write a note in your margin to that effect that I believe it's got verse 12 translated wrong, opposite of how it ought to be translated. Because here, the emphasis is on Judah's unruliness against God in spite of God's faithfulness to them. So, bottom line... Coming into Hosea chapter 12, referring to both Israel and Judah, no one's doing anything good and God is not happy about it. That's how we come into chapter 12. And so he's pointing them both. He's pointing the northern and the southern kingdom both, all of them, the whole nation, back to the time before the division of the kingdom to the very beginning in order to show them all how long-standing their sin has been and how long-suffering their God has been to them. And he wants to plead with them to return to him now. That's what this chapter is all about. He's got an indictment against Judah, he says in verse 2, and he will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. And notice there that God is is using both the name Israel and the name Jacob to refer to the nation. And that makes us think back and remember back, which is what God wants to do here, to how Jacob became named Israel, right? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 32, where the one who was named Jacob ended up wrestling against what was called a man at first, and then the angel of the Lord at first, and then after the wrestling match was over, Jacob realized that he had seen the face of God himself, that he had actually been wrestling with the Son of God. And then the Son of God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which would be the name that the descendants of his 
12 sons would be called when God formed them into a nation at Mount Sinai years later. But see, God, so God wants to point back to that for some reason, but also he wants to point back even before that. In verse 3, before his name was changed to Israel, he wants to point back to, to the birth of Jacob, to this moment when God brought him into the world as a baby and gave the name Jacob to him because of how he was born. Do you remember what Jacob's name refers to? Genesis chapter 25. God had promised Abraham in his old age, and in spite of his wife's barrenness, he had promised them a child, and they laughed at God at the thought of being able to have a child together. At this old age that they were both at, it seemed absurd to them. So when the child was born, the child of promise, he, he was named Isaac, which means laughter. And then Isaac had two sons, right? Twins in the womb. And the first one out of the womb, the, the older one technically, would, would ordinarily be the one entitled to the birthright. His name was Esau. It, 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 it referred to his appearance. He had lots of red hair and he was ruddy looking, it says. But his little brother was literally right on his heel. Remember? Literally. He came out of the womb literally grasping onto Esau's heel. In the womb, verse 3 right here actually says, in the womb he took his brother by the heel. And that's actually what the, what the word Yaakov means in Hebrew. Jacob means, it means heel, he is at the heel is, is what the name means. And usually it was, that name was given to little boys, meaning, meaning something like, may God be at your heel. Meaning, may God always be behind you. May God always have your back, so to speak. But here in this family, it's got a double meaning, see? Because from the get-go, Jacob was always trying to grab his brother's heel and, and pull, him, pull him back and pull himself ahead of his brother to get ahead, right? So he... He bargained with his older brother, bargained him out of his birthright for a bowl of hot soup when he was starving, and he tricked and deceived, Jacob did, his father Isaac in his old age into giving the blessing to him, to Jacob, instead of to Esau, to whom it rightly belonged. And when Esau found out that those two things had happened, he said to his father in Genesis 27, well, it's right that you named him Jacob because he's cheated me these two times. And the word in the Hebrew that he uses for cheated is Jacob. He literally says, he Jacobed me twice now. That's what Esau says to Isaac. And this reputation would follow Jacob, would characterize Jacob throughout his adult life, right? Even Laban. Laban, was, Laban tried to trick Jacob, but Ended up being Jacob in the end, didn't he? Until the angel of the Lord met Jacob there, Genesis 32, and wrestled him. And after all night of wrestling, just touched Jacob's hip and disjointed him and then renamed him Israel. Israel means literally he strives because he had, he had strove with God in that wrestling match. And that's what verse 4 of our text here says in Hosea 12. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. So again, the, 
the angel of the Lord who Jacob met and strove with that night was God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, long before he would become incarnate in human flesh in the person of Jesus. He's the one that Jacob wrestled. He's the one that changed Jacob's name to Israel. And one Hebrew scholar that I was reading this past week describes the name of Israel as implying a, a tenacity but without stealth. To strive but without the deception that Jacob had been characterized by before in his life, right? So somebody who's, who's strong and tenacious but opposed to the, the kind of sneaky way that Jacob had lived his life in the past. See, now that he'd wrestled with God and put every ounce of his own strength into winning, only, have, only to have God dislocate his hip just by touching it, now Jacob would go from being preoccupied with himself and what he wanted and preoccupied with men and the things of this world and getting ahead, now he would go to being focused on pursuing the ways of God in the strength that God supplied him with. And that's what his name would refer to. And that's what God is pointing them back to now. The whole nation here in Hosea 12. Jacob met God at Bethel. In Genesis 32, Bethel is the name that the place was given where this wrestling match occurred back in Genesis 32. Bethel means house of God, literally, Bethel, house of God. And, and the terrible irony is that by Hosea's day, centuries later, the city of Bethel, the city of that, that, that's named house of God, has become one of the main centers of the worship of false gods, where they set up idols and statues in honor to the pagan gods, and where they practice horrible immorality in worshiping those pagan gods. And you remember that in the book of Hosea, God starts referring to that city not as Bethel, not as the house of God, but as Beth-Avon now. Avon literally means iniquity, wickedness no longer the house of God. It's now the house of wickedness. And so see, now God's pointing them back to what it was originally, back to their roots, back to the beginning. When Jacob, who always tried to get ahead in his own strength by his own cunning, deceitful ways, when he met God at Bethel and was given a new name and a new identity. Because when the angel of the Lord, when the Son of God wrestled Jacob and bested Jacob that night, he did that not to humiliate Jacob, but as an outpouring of grace that would forever change Jacob as a man. When he broke Jacob's hip, he broke Jacob's pride and arrogance, but he did it without totally destroying Jacob or diminishing Jacob's zealousness. He just redirected him. Now all of Jacob's zeal and ambition that had been driven out of his own prideful, selfish, and sinful impulses was, was, was redirected towards serving the Lord in the strength of the Lord. That's what the new name Israel meant. See, striving with God, for God, in the strength of God and for the glory of God. Because it was God who had made this change in him. It was God who had made Jacob in the first place. In his image. 
It was God who had graciously called Jacob's grandfather Abraham out of the land of Ur. It was God who had promised him a child. It was God who had met Jacob there at Bethel. It wasn't any of these idols that did those things. It wasn't a golden calf. God says, I did all of that, and I did it for you. And so in verse 5, then God puts the focus on his name, see? The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, Yahweh is his memorial name. The self-existent one, the God of heaven and earth, the, the one who is sovereign over all the hosts of heaven. He's the one who had met Jacob that night at Bethel. Jacob didn't go looking for him. Jacob didn't initiate this encounter with the angel. God, in his sovereign grace, had come to Jacob, unsought, unexpected, and had overwhelmed Jacob by his own sovereign strength and in his grace in a way that completely transformed Jacob from being an impetuous, self-serving, deceitful opportunist to being a powerful servant of the Most High God. And so see what God is saying in this chapter? He's saying you've got to look back. You've got to remember, verse 6, so that you, by the help of your God, might return to what you were instead of what you've become. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. They have gone so far astray from what they were. They have gone so far astray from him over all of the years since he so graciously and powerfully encountered Jacob in Bethel. Go back, God is saying. Return, God is saying. Hold fast once again to love and to justice and wait continually for your God. That night in Bethel in Genesis 32, as Jacob wrestled against the Son of God, you remember what he said to the angel? After his hip had been dislocated, he still wouldn't let go, remember? He's still holding on with everything that he's got, even though he's, even though he's got no hope of winning now. And he said to the Son of God, I will not let you go until you bless me. And here now, God is saying, do that again. Cling to me like that again. And depend on me and rely on me for blessing again. Go back, return. Cling to your God with that same God-focused tenacity. Wait continually for your God. That's what that means. Return to a life of relying on me and trusting me and depending wholly on me and leaning not on your own strength and understanding. And even in this call to repentance, which is what this is, to turn from their self-centered, foolish pride and return to him and to holiness. Even in that call, there is included the assurance of grace that will enable, right? I know you can't do it on your own, Israel. I know you're helpless in your own strength. So by the help of your God, return and hold fast. And wait continually for your God. After all, again, it was God's initiative in coming to Jacob. It was God's unexpected, unsought, grace-filled power that had overwhelmed Jacob, that had transformed Jacob, that had changed Jacob's life forever. 
God's the one who created all things by the power of his voice. We didn't call ourselves into being. God's the one who breathed life into the dust of the ground and made Adam a living soul. Adam didn't do that to himself. God's the one who made us. God's the one who sought us when we weren't even looking for him. He said, here I am, here I am, to a people who weren't seeking him, he says in his word. And so here he's pleading with Israel to remember where they came from, to remember by whose sovereign arm they were made able to stand in the first place, and to return to leaning fully on him. And the same message applies fully to us. See, this is what God would say to us in his word. We have been found by the good shepherd who sought us when we had gone desperately astray from him and could never find our way back. We have been raised to newness of life when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We didn't do that to ourselves. We have been born of water and spirit. And, and, and you know that babies don't birth themselves. We are totally dependent on our Heavenly Father. How much of our lives reflect that? How much of our lives are lived for Him, lived by faith, continually waiting for Him, striving in His strength, walking by His wisdom, devoted to His pleasure and glory? How much do we really live as though our lives are not our own? Because that's the truth, that's the reality. How much do we really live as, as, as if the truth is true, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and that the life that I live in the flesh now, I live for him, not for me, for him who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Israel, in the 8th century B.C., when Hosea lived, they had forgotten who they were and where they came from. Functionally, especially, they had forgotten they had forgotten who God is, who had so powerfully and graciously raised them up. And so God says, now by the help of God, return and hold fast. But look at their response. Verses 7 through 9. Look at the hardness of the sinful human heart. Look at the foolishness of those to whom the living God pleads to return. Israel in Hosea's day, it says in verse 7, is a merchant in whose hands are false balances and he loves to oppress. They've forgotten the love. They've forgotten the faithfulness, right? Back to the Jacob profile now. Self-serving. Always trying to get ahead through whatever dishonest, unloving, arrogant means necessary. And God says, return and hold fast to love and to justice. Stop being like Jacob of old and, and start living like Israel that God made him to be. Wait continually for your God. But Ephraim says in response, why should I? What's in it for me? That's verse 8. Ephraim has said, well, I'm rich. I found wealth for myself in all my labors. They can't find in me iniquity or sin. How could what I've done be so wrong when it has gotten me so much good stuff? That's the attitude towards God that they had. That's the disposition of their hearts. Now look back at verse 7 where God says that Israel had become a merchant who dealt unjustly and unlovingly and oppressively. The word merchant there, you know what that word is in Hebrew? 
It's literally the word Canaan. The, the word for the promised land and the name of the wicked pagan people who they were supposed to drive out of the promised land when God brought them there, the Canaanites. God is saying, you've, you've gone from Jacob who was impetuous to Israel who served God to Canaanites now. Literally is what God's saying. You've gone from being Israelites who strive with God in his strength and for his glory to being Canaanites, to living like the godless pagans who inhabited this land before I brought you here. They have plunged themselves fully back into the depths of their own, of their own self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And in self-sufficiency and self-reliance, they're now doing what every sinner does who remains committed to their sin instead of turning in repentance to God. What sinners do when they remain committed to their sin is they justify their sin before God. They say, it's not actually sin, God, it's righteousness. It's good because it's gotten me good places and good things. And they do that, sinners, because they serve self instead of serving God. This is what sin does in every human heart when it's not dealt with, when it's not confessed, when it's not repented of, when it's left to fester and spread like mold, as God has already shown us it does earlier in this book. Unconfessed and unrepentant sin orients the heart and orients the mind and orients the life around self instead of God. And when it does that, then it defines right and wrong according to what self wants, according to selfish desires and ambitions, instead of the will and the holiness and the law of the Most High God. And, and it justifies self in doing whatever is necessary, according to self, to get what self wants and to achieve what self aspires to, instead of living according to the righteousness of God, who is holy just like Jacob had done when he took advantage of his brother and lied and deceived and tricked his father in order to get the birthright, in order to get the blessing all for himself until he met God and strived in all of his strength and was transformed. But here now they've gone back, all the way back to that self-reliant, self-willed, self-righteous spirit that God had brought Jacob out of. And they thought the way we're living can't be wrong because what it's gotten us seems so right. All of the riches, all of the wealth, all of the worldly prosperity. The ends justify the means in the foolishness of the sinful heart and mind. That's what's going on here. It is the spirit of this age in which we live where people turn their backs on God and where the rulers of this earth set themselves against God, Psalm 2, and against Christ the anointed, and say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Right? We will not be bound anymore by God's definitions of right and wrong. Our lives will not be defined by what God wants any longer. That's the spirit of this age. It's the same today as it was in Hosea's day, and as it was in the days of the judges, right, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no fear of the Lord before them. Same today. 
same today as it was in Israel when everybody was calling things that were actually objectively evil according to God, when they were calling evil good. And when they were calling good, evil. That's what we're doing today, isn't it? Abandoning God's definition of right and wrong and exchanging God's truth for the lies of sinful fleshly desire. And it's that same arrogant, self-reliant and self-righteous impulse which is ultimately what's behind all of the wickedness in our land today, which gets justified as being good. Well, what God says is actually good gets labeled by the world now as being wrong and oppressive and destructive and evil. So again, God points Ephraim back, verse 9. Look back to what you were not and see how far you've strayed. Now in verse 9, he's pointing them back to when he led them up out of Egypt in the Exodus. And they dwelt in tents in the wilderness. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. Now the impact of that reminder, that look back, is twofold. First of all, God is sort of asking them something like this. He's saying, was it, was it for this that you've become? Was it for this that I redeemed you and brought you up out of the land of Egypt and brought you into the promised land? Did I do all of that so that you could become Canaanites? That's literally what's going on here because he says that's what they've become. You weren't supposed to become Canaanites. You were supposed to throw the Canaanites out, vanquish the Canaanites, and become holy in distinction from all of the nations around you. And then secondly, he's pointing them back to the appointed feast, he says there in verse 9. That's the Feast of Tabernacles, where they commemorate all that God did for them during the Exodus by way of an annual feast that they would celebrate every single year, still in Hosea's day. And what God is saying here is, what's going on in your mind when you do that, guys? When you go and and participate in the Feast of Tabernacles, where are your heads at? What are you thinking about? Because see, in their hypocrisy, they have the audacity while celebrating the goodness of God in the Exodus to keep living like the Canaanites. When commemorating God's mercy and provision and power and righteousness and goodness ought to be leading them to live in faithfulness and godliness and holiness and righteousness, but no. No, There's nothing about their lives that distinguished them in any way from the Canaanite pagans who dominated the land before God brought Israel there. Is this what it was all for, God said? Is this why I redeemed you out of Israel? Is this why I gave you the promised land? So that you could live the way they lived? Again, uh, the parallels for us, I think, are so obvious that they hardly need to be mentioned. How many Christians fill the pews of how many churches How many Sunday mornings going through all the motions of worshiping God, singing his praises, reading his word, confessing his holiness. But their lives, 
Monday through Saturday and most of Sunday, are indistinguishable from the godless worldliness all around us. How many churches, in fact, promote ungodliness from their pulpits, calling evil good, calling good evil, and refuse to stand fast for what God says is holy and right and just and true? So here he says in verse 9 to Israel that, that because of their hypocrisy, he's once again going to make them live in tents like they did back in the wilderness after the Exodus. Which means, first of all, that all of the wealth and prosperity that they've luxuriated in and that, that's come by way of their ungodly living, all of that's going to be stripped away from them. Back to the wilderness for you. Back to the tents for you. They won't be able to depend on the things that they've depended on instead of God any longer. But also, remember back to chapter 2, where God said something very similar when he was speaking to Israel as an unfaithful bride. And he said to her that he would lead her out into the wilderness in order to what? To strip her of all the things that were wrong but to allure her and to speak tenderly to her so that she would learn to answer him as in the days of her youth, as in the days when God led her up out of Egypt. I'm going to tear away all these things that you've loved and trusted in and depended on more than me, but not in order to humiliate you and not just in order to punish you, but to purify you, to purge you, and to leave you with nothing to depend upon but me. Just like they did when I led them out of Egypt. Ultimately that, as we've seen it woven all the way through this book, that is the heart of God's purpose in dealing with their sin. He purposes to punish them, but ultimately he purposes purification by the life-transforming power of his sovereign grace. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that when God spoke to them like this, they would listen to him, for sure. That when God called out their sin in such graphic terms and told them what was coming because of their sin and pleaded with them to turn, to look back, and, and to return, to learn to depend on his goodness and grace once again, walk by faith, walk in holiness, you would think that they would. But they wouldn't, and they hadn't for many, many years. He, he had spoken. This isn't the first time, right? Verse 10, I spoke, past tense, to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. This isn't a new message. I've been, I've been shouting this at you for, for centuries, God says. And so that's why he says in verse 11, from Gilead to Gilgal, Israel is ripening for judgment. It's not like they didn't know. It's not like they weren't warned. It's not like there weren't centuries of opportunity for them to turn back and avoid what's coming. It's, it's just that they wouldn't because of the hardness of their hearts. So verse 12, once again, glancing back 
to the former days of Jacob, the days after he'd extorted his brother, after he'd deceived his father, what did he have to do? He had to flee into the wilderness because Esau was mad. And Jacob was afraid he was going to kill him. So Jacob had to flee into the wilderness and live there in servitude as a fugitive. And I think there in verse 12, God is telling Israel now in Hosea's day that, that this is once again what's in store for them. You're going to live in servitude. You're, you're going to live in the wilderness. You're going to live as fugitives because you won't come back to me, because you won't return to me. In spite of centuries of his divine patience and pleading by the prophets, and in spite of all that he had done through the prophets, that's the message here. He hadn't just told them things that they could know in their minds. He had spoken with living and active power, the very word of God to them, and the word of God does stuff. Through the power of his word, going all the way back to the Exodus, right? God worked spectacularly and miraculously, supernaturally through the prophet Moses in in Egypt there, right? Verses 13 and 14. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up. This is how God works. He, He works through his spoken word and through its power to enact his purposes, and to transform lives. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, Israel was guarded in the wilderness. But Ephraim is given bitter provocation. And so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. See, the exodus didn't just happen. It certainly didn't just happen because uh, politically, one group of people rose up against their oppressors. I mean, that's how unbelievers like to spin the story. But that's not what happened. What happened was a godless earthly ruler, Pharaoh, shook his fist at Almighty God and dared to challenge Almighty God. Moses said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is this, who is this God? Who is this Yahweh? that I should answer to him. So Almighty God says, I'll tell you. I'll show you. You remember how, right? Through Moses, through a prophet, through the power of his word. By a prophet, Moses, speaking the word of God, the Nile River turned to blood. The land teemed with flies and frogs. The skies turned to utter darkness everywhere except where the people of God lived. The Red Sea was parted. The people of Israel were brought up from Egypt through the wilderness, ultimately into the power, into the promised land, whereby the sovereign power of the same word by which God spoke the universe into being, God through the prophets guarded Israel. He caused the walls of Jericho to fall. He caused the sun to stand still in the sky. He caused the Philistines to fall and the Canaanites to cower through the power of his word. But when God spoke through his prophets to his own people, to Israel themselves, they plugged up their ears. They rebuffed him. They rejected his word. They blew him off. 
and for centuries they lived and acted like they didn't need his word, like they didn't need his power, because they've got it made in the shade there in Israel, doing things their way, in their own ability, according to their own understanding. Who needs this God who brought us up out of Egypt and gave us the promised land? That's their attitude. Who needs his power? Who needs his word? Again, we are living in such days. Who needs the power of God? We're we're the greatest nation ever. Things are, things are going great. We don't need the word of God. And that attitude will suffuse your mind and spirit if you're not careful to guard against it. This was the mindset. This was the heart attitude of the very people who came into being by the word of God, who came out of Egypt by the word of God, who came into the promised land by the word of God, who watched the sun stand still by the word of God. Who needs him? Who needs his word? We've got this. Be careful about letting any such thought or attitude fester within you. Because in that attitude, they provoked the God who had spoken and who had acted and who had done so much for them through his word. So again, we barely even need to say as we come to the end of this chapter, we barely even need to draw the parallels to where, where we are today, in this age, in this place, as a nation, as, a, as a, even the church, capital C, not this one, but the church is becoming more and more classified by this attitude. We don't need God's word. We can play fast and loose with God's word. We can substitute God's word with some other word. We can add to God's word because it's not enough and we need more prophecies. We need more revelations. We need more than what God's just given us in this book. Proverbs 29 says, where there is no prophecy, the people are unrestrained. That's what was going on in Israel in the 8th century. That's what's going on today. They cast off the actual word of God, the living, active, pure word of God, and exchanged the truth of his divine revelation for the lies of the devil and the lies of this world, and so have we. They cast off the actual prophets of God and brought in false prophets who said whatever they wanted them to say. People who just said, I'm a prophet, great, what do you have to, oh, I like that better than what Hosea is saying. That's, this, isn't, this isn't pleasant. That guy, Jeremiah, let's bury him down in a pit. He's got nothing fun to listen to. And let's just bring in somebody else who says he's a prophet. Pretend prophets. Just calling themselves prophets or prophetesses. But they're not speaking God's word. They're speaking their own words. Telling people what they want to hear. Remember, they were saying, Pete, don't worry. There's peace, peace. When there's no peace, God's about to rain judgment down. And these false prophets are saying, don't you worry about that. They promised prosperity when God was proclaiming his purposes of judgment. They pointed people away from truth. They pointed people away from the true God. First and foremost, by pointing them to themselves as false prophets. Paul said, didn't he, in, in 2 Timothy 4, the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves false teachers to suit their own passions. And that time of false teachers has come and is now. As people deny 
what God has revealed in his word. And as people deny the sufficiency of his word in scripture in order to promote themselves as having something more and something better, something special, something unique that the rest of us don't have by just reading this book. What we really need is to be impressed with these new revelations that the prophets and prophetesses offer us. But really what they're offering and what they're proclaiming is a different God and a different gospel. Jesus said, don't you, don't you be fooled. They might look like sheep, but they're just dressed up like sheep really inwardly. They're ravenous wolves, Matthew chapter 7. False prophets, Matthew chapter 7, who would devour, who would lead people away from the true God and from the truth of his word. And that's what they do. Universally, almost every single time somebody says, I have a new revelation, it contradicts what's in God's word in critical ways. So this is, this is I think, the most important message and warning that God would have for us from his living, active, God-breathed word. It, it's don't trust any person who claims to speak from God beyond what God has already spoken in his all-sufficient word in the Bible. Well, he spoke through prophets before, it, it, yes, indeed, but what does the Bible say? In the past, Hebrews 1, long ago, and that was written 2,000 years ago. In the past, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by way of prophets, but not anymore, not now. Now God has spoken through his son, through Jesus Christ, who came, who took on flesh and was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem. Now God has revealed himself in his will and his purposes for the world through him, through Jesus, and through everything that was written about Jesus by the apostles who wrote the books of the New Testament scriptures, which bring to completion all that God has purposed to reveal. Because his word in the 66 books of the Bible isn't just inerrant, isn't just God-breathed, it is sufficient, and no additions are needed. And so if you hear anyone say that they have some more revelation from God, some additional prophecy, some, some special message to add to the all-sufficient scriptures, that's when you know not to trust them. Because what they're telling you is the scriptures are in fact not all-sufficient and that they have something more. Reject them, especially when their message, which it invariably will, actually contradicts what God reveals in his word because they're trying to promote some version of truth that isn't God's truth, just like the false prophets in Israel tried to do, just like the false apostles in Paul's day tried to do, tickling people's ears instead of pointing them to all-sufficient word of God and to the holy God who reveals himself and his will in that word. Today there are lots of people, self-proclaimed prophets, self-proclaimed prophetesses who claim to hear from God, who claim to have visions from God, who claim to have special access to God's revealed word and will. And that can sound pretty enticing, exciting. They've got, they've got special access to the mind of God. 
I want to know what they know. I want to listen to what they have to say. And Satan's just rubbing his hands in glee. They do it with words that sound good, that tickle the ears, but do not fall for it. Jesus himself warned that the devil uses signs and wonders and other counterfeit things to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. That's what Satan will be doing all through these days that Jesus calls the last days. Trying to lead people astray away from the word of God and scripture. In the word of God and in the scriptures and through it alone, the living God is calling his people to turn to him, to trust him, to heed his word, to be transformed by the living active power of his true word. To not just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it, to walk by faith in him, forsaking this world, forsaking all false gods, all false gospels, all false words, forsaking self in order to live by his strength, according to his word, according to his will, and for the sake of his glory. Let's pray together today for the grace to be able to do that. Our God and our Father, again, we ask that you would sear this truth into our minds and into our hearts. And Father, we acknowledge and we confess that this word that you have given us in these books that were breathed out by your Holy Spirit through the prophets and apostles, that it is sufficient and that it is powerful in a way that no other words are. And so, Father, focus us on it and fill us with it and convince us of it and convict us by it and renew our minds according to its truth that our lives might be transformed for your glory. This is what we pray. Holy Spirit, come and by the living active power of God within us and the word abiding in us, change us, transform us, preserve us, prepare us, and continue to sanctify us. In Jesus' name, amen.